At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday at 10 a.m. ET to hear new stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and on the show today, we're thrilled to have Dr. Daphne Voinescos. Dr. Voinescos is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto and a psychiatrist and clinician scientist at the Temerty Center for Therapeutic Brain Intervention at CAMH. She's also the medical lead of the RTMS Clinic at the Paul Hansen Family Depression Center at Toronto's UHN, the University Health Network. Dr. Voinescos' scientific impact is advancing and personalizing investigational and therapeutic brain stimulation techniques in treatment refractory psychiatric disorders. Dr. Voinescos has recently been named the Labatt Family Professor in Depression Biology at the University of Toronto. Her early international reputation for her research and scientific potential has been recognized provincially by the prestigious John C. Poliani Prize in Physiology slash Medicine and internationally by the American Psychiatric Association. She's principal investigator or co-investigator on multiple studies to optimize and personalize brain stimulation delivery. And she's a committed mentor and supervisor to graduate students and medical trainees. Dr. Voinescos's research focuses on the neurobiological mechanisms and abnormalities in depression with a translational goal of integrating these scientific findings into clinical care. Welcome to the show, Dr. Voinescos. Can I call you Daphne? Please, thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. And, uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're so interested in uh, mental health these days as a society. And on this podcast, where we're devoting the whole month to it, um, before we get into talking about mental health and depression and solutions for entrepreneurs, is there any sort of general advice you'd like to share with our listeners? I think, you know, that's a tricky question to answer right off the bat, but mostly when you ask that, I, I think, where should I start? <laughs> um, because I think there are many avenues you can go down with that. But I, I think 
if we focus on the last few years, it's been really difficult and it continues to be re really difficult for everybody. Um, I think the focus now should really be on us looking out for each other as we hope others would look out for us. Um, being sort of, you know, kind and considerate. Everyone's having lots of difficulties in day-to-day -day life. And I think we're all wrapped up in our own issues. N almost counterintuitively, if we sort of try to walk a mile in another's shoes, you know, we never really know what others are struggling with. I think we'd all get a lot further. I know it sounds a bit a bit funny to say you can you can feel better by looking out for others, but I, I truly believe that, that that sort of thing propagates itself um, and, and helps us all all to get a little bit further in life. I think that's really true as well. And actually, I'm, I was looking at some people agonizing over Twitter the other day, and one person came in and offered almost exactly the same advice. And they said, um, before you fire off a response that's going to inflame people, ask yourself, is it kind and is it true? Absolutely. Yeah. So throughout November, we're talking to entrepreneurs about mental health in recognition of Mental Health Awareness Month. Entrepreneurs are the brightest and most confident people I know, but every success has a price. And a, and a 2019 study by BDC and the Canadian Mental Health Association revealed that 62% of entrepreneurs in Canada feel depressed at least once a week. Do you have any thoughts on why busy, busy business owners might be feeling down these days? Yeah, and, and I think it's important to differentiate sort of that feeling of being down with the psychiatric illness, the constant state of feeling down or empty and not being able to enjoy anything. You know, there are stresses in day-to-day -day life and um, finding constructive ways of being able to conquer those and move forward, I think is a real strength of entrepreneurs in general, as far as I know, people who are entrepreneurs, and I'm not an expert, but but it, it's there's a lot of determination and a lot of uh, motivation, I think. And and when, when that doesn't go well, I think it's okay to feel down a little bit. And the ability to pick yourself back up and keep going, I think that's where the real strength of entrepreneurs comes from. Um, there's a difference, I think, between sort of those stressors and feeling down when something isn't going well, when there's a lot on your plate, and sort of the absence of being able to uh, enjoy things, of having a sad or a low mood and tearfulness all the time, having it affect your sleep, um, your energy and your appetite, and, and feeling this way for sort of more than a few weeks at a time. That's, that's how we define depression or major depressive disorder. Um, and the other thing I think is is really important and can contribute to that for sure, but it's sort of those stresses of day-to-day -day life. And so I think something I heard uh, a little while ago is that motivation fades, but discipline and determination don't. And, and that's where I think people need to lean on uh, a little bit as much as they can and then reach out for some help if that's not going well and you're feeling like your plate is overloaded. I, I guess we've got a sort of a problem in language, right? We, mm -hmm. we have the phrase of, well, I'm feeling depressed today, my, my dog's ill, and the clinical state of depression. Can you tell me that, that you sort of hinted at uh, that the difference is one of longitude, continuance over time. What yeah. are some of the other things that separate feeling depressed from depression? 
Yeah, so I, I think, you know, it's uh, partly, a, a, I wouldn't necessarily call it a problem of language, but but yes, there are some colloquialisms that we use, I think, that overlap the two. Um, and certainly your mood can be down or depressed for the day. When we talk about a major depressive episode or um, an episode of illness, uh, we really mean something that is seriously impacting your ability to function. That's one of the criteria that we have to tick off uh, when we're investigating if somebody has major depressive disorder or depression from bipolar disorder or just a depressive episode in general. Um, and so, you know, it's it's a couple things. So it's the uh, a low or tearful or down mood as and sometimes also the lack of ability to enjoy things that you would otherwise enjoy. And so frequently we'll ask people about um, whether they still enjoy food or music or a TV show that they would previously enjoy. And a, a lot of the things that we ask people in our psychiatric interviews are, are how they were feeling when they were feeling well. And then we contrast it with, with how they're feeling now. And then the other criteria are for it to impact your motivation. So your ability to like get dressed, to take care of yourself, brush your teeth, have a shower, um, your ability to go to work or school, uh, to interact with others socially, your appetite, concentration. So it is really this all-encompassing um, cloud over people's lives that seriously affects their day-to-day -day functioning. And then, of course, there's the most serious thing, which is sort of these intrusive uh, thoughts, either occasionally or all the time of wanting to or thinking about ending your life or that life isn't worth living anymore. And those are the ones that can be quite scary, uh, both for the people experiencing them and the people around around the person. One of the factors you just mentioned was going to school or, you know, feeling anxious or depressed about going to school, going to work. But mm -hmm. post COVID, there's lots of reasons for being anxious about that. And Absolutely. so surely that, and that probably also makes depression a lot harder to recognize or identify. Yeah, you know, um, anxiety and depression, I, I tend to say that they go hand in hand. It's quite rare, I think, that you'll find somebody who is down or depressed, um, who has no aspects of worry or anxiety. And also, if you're someone with a prominent anxiety disorder, it's I think it's pretty difficult to have a decent mood and be able to enjoy things, right? If you have intrusive sort of omnipresent worries and anxious thoughts that are also affecting your day-to-day -day life. And the world we live in now um, where, you know, COVID has been, the pandemic has been going on for two or more years and then uh, is sort of continuing to happen in, in some aspects, although I think we like to move on through life like it's not happening. Um, uh, those are lots of extra stressors and worries and loss that a lot of people have experienced over the last uh, several years that that are impacting people's lives. So I think I think you're right. We're living in a very stressful world right now. Okay, so we're going to go deeper, but before that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your career journey. How did you become interested in mental health, and how hard did you have to work in order to get all those roles and titles and honors that I cited at the beginning of the show? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I consider myself still quite early on in my career, although, uh, you know, I think as that goes on, perhaps, uh, perhaps that's not actually the case. Um, I, I'm somebody who was interested in medicine from a young age. Um, uh, I do have some family members who are also in medicine, some family members who also work in psychiatry. And actually, for me, that that sort of turned me away from psychiatry for a little bit. I thought it might be a bit silly for there to be more psychiatrists in my family. Um, but as I went through undergraduate university um, and through medical school, I kept being drawn towards the brain in itself. 
um, and, and towards research in the brain. And it, it feels a bit in medicine like the brain is sort of that final frontier. It's this organ that controls all the things we do, all the things we feel, all the things we think. And we still don't really know how and why. Um, there are some illnesses we've made fantastic progress in. There have been lots of recent discoveries with Alzheimer's dementia, um, with Parkinson's disease um, or disorder, with, uh, with a lot of the neurological disorders. There are lots of things in these higher level human functions, right, in our mood, our feelings, that we still don't totally understand. And that's that's really attractive to my curiosity. So towards the end of medical school, I turned back to psychiatry and specifically to research about the brain and about why we feel the way we feel and how the therapies that we have in existence and then also that are being developed, how those work. Because I think that the part that I find um, in treating patients, and I'm, I'm very lucky to work in clinical research, and especially at CAMH, where um, I think the whole center has worked very hard to have a focus on clinical research and be at the forefront of it. And we, what's really wonderful is that my clinical work then informs my research, and my research can then inform my clinical work. And so what we found, especially with patients with these um, what we call treatment-resistant um, uh, psychiatric disorders or, or let's say depression that isn't responding to the first or second or third type of, of treatment or medication or psychotherapy is that the trial and error of it is very frustrating for people. And I think that's totally understandable. Um, and, and so the work that I'm focusing on is to try and develop um, some sort of tests or investigations that we could do into the brain in a sort of non-invasive manner to figure out who might respond to the types of treatments we do at the Temerity Center and at the RTMS clinic at UHN, and who would not. So let's try and not waste people's time and have them just go through one after another after another, but really try and direct people to what will is more likely to work for them. Um, and, and in that as well, perhaps, you know, if we can, and this is my big dream, so we're quite far away from it, develop some diagnostic tests uh, that we could do relatively quickly to diagnose depression or subtypes of depression for people. Similar to how um, when the doctor tells you of diabetes, it's because you've gone and had your blood work done um, and, and they figured out that your blood sugar is out of whack uh, and, and that you likely have diabetes. We don't have that in psychiatry. Um, I think there's been lots of movement and different avenues to do that, but that's been the focus of, of my PhD, which I did during residency, and then now sort of my independent research as we move forward into new avenues of brain stimulation. Wow. <laughs> so much to unpack there. <laughs> I have a pretty good idea what most entrepreneurs do all day, but I have no idea what a typical day for you might look like. Can you tell us about a typical day? Yeah. So uh, I think the other piece is that there aren't lots of typical <laughs> days. <laughs> because I work at more than one hospital, I sort of bounce around a little bit. And you try to, you know, I think entrepreneurs have this as well, where you try to keep things separate, right? I'm sure you have, you know, times where you have planning meetings and, um, you know, business venture meetings and pitch meetings and financial meetings. I mean, you try to keep them separate, but they but they kind of bleed into each other, right? So, uh, you know, I may have a day at CAMH and a different day at UHN, but really some meetings overlap. <laughs> But I have uh, I have one or two days a week where I see patients, um, and so I work 
in, in the brain stimulation clinic at both hospitals. We do a couple different types of brain stimulation. Um, the most traditional one that people know about is electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy, which is we call it, that's not what we call it anymore. We call it ECT. Um, and, and that is for people who are really, really unwell, largely for inpatients, but also some outpatients who, um, who uh, nothing has worked for them and, and they're quite debilitated by their illness. And, um, you know, my mentors have worked very hard to help develop um, uh, newer types of brain stimulation. Um, the one that we focus on is called RTMS or repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is why we call it RTMS, because as I mentioned to you off mic, that's a big mouthful. Um, and that uses magnets actually to activate or quiet down specific areas of the brain as opposed to the whole brain work that uh, ECT does. So it's, it doesn't need a general anesthetic. There's no seizure. It's sort of a few minutes of treatment and then the patient's out and they can go back to work or school or home. Um, so, so two of my days of the week, I'll see patients consultations for those treatments and also help deliver those treatments. We have wonderful RTMS technicians who actually deliver the treatment. And then as physicians, we supervise. And then three days of the week are filled with uh, student supervision. Um, so I have some graduate students working on some of the projects I was describing before, master's and PhD students. And then um, also meetings about grants and projects that we're trying to get up and running and projects that are continuing on um, where we need to talk about things like recruitment numbers. So the number of patients who have come through a clinical trial, how people are doing, if there are any issues with the trial, um, uh, and, and how to move forward with it to make sure the trials are successful in meeting, uh, in meeting the goals. And then we can work on analyzing the data that we've collected and see how the therapies worked. Um, and then, you know, in there somewhere, I try to find time for my own work, <laughs> writing up results and, uh, and thinking of new ideas and collaborating with people. Um, and hopefully soon, uh, I think we'll be able to start getting back to things like scientific conferences in person. They've already started up and running. Um, and, and so there's some travel built in as well. So it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag, um, my days. Uh, and, and the interesting thing about research is that, you know, it's not really a nine to five job. Um, there's always a paper to edit or to review uh, some data to analyze. So there are some after hours work uh, times and, and also weekends, especially when there are pushes for funding, um, grant grant competitions that have specific deadlines. So so those are my weekdays. But if you asked my husband, I think he'd tell you that uh, there are also some evenings and weekends where I disappear into my office to do some some work as well. Yeah, so it sounds like an entrepreneur's life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you mentioned ECT, electric convulsive therapy electroconvulsive therapy yeah yeah um at, or shock therapy as we used to mm -hmm. call it um just to, and, and then you talked about the new rtms tell us a little bit about what brain stimulation is for what 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 does it what what does it do for yeah whom? so usually brain stimulation is used um for a lot of types of different psychiatric disorders, mainly for uh, depression that has not responded to medications or to psychotherapy. And that can be from people who have what we call major depressive disorder, where their episodes of mood illness are only that feeling low with lack of motivation and self-care and difficulty with appetite and concentration that we talked about before. But also uh, in bipolar disorder, you can have episodes of depression. 
um, of feeling low and, and those similar types of, of symptoms, um, quite similar to the major depressive disorder. And then it's also used in, in what we call psychotic disorders, which I think, you know, have a lot more stigma around them um, than depression and anxiety have in the last few years. Um, so uh, illnesses like schizophrenia um, or schizoaffective disorder, where there's some psychotic components, things like hearing voices and having paranoid thoughts, as well as some mood components, feeling very up or very down. Um, so any of these disorders where medication has not worked um, and psychotherapy has not worked uh, after, you know, about two or three trials is the time to look at some of, of the brain, inter brain stimulation interventions or treatments. Um, now, RTMS has been around actually since the mid-1990s. It was developed in England um, in about 1995 or so, and then therapeutically, so as a treatment, has been around since sort of the early to, to mid-2000s, but it's still not on the OHIP formulary, as we call it. So we don't, at CAMH, we don't provide it uh, as like a prescription, um, and, and same at UHN. So the way we're able to provide the treatment for free, so we don't charge people for it, of course, um, is to uh, continue to run these philanthropically and federally funded um, clinical trials. Um, and then people who have responded to the treatments were able to, to very kindly from the hospitals have um, funding to be able to provide. The, if treatment worked for you, it would be great that we could provide it again, right? So uh, so the, the hospitals have very kindly provided us with some funding to be able to, to uh, give the treatments to people who have responded from a clinical trial before. Do you see uh, RTMS being on a track to being uh, funded like any other like most types of uh, therapies or practices? That's that's something that we're working very hard to do um, because it has provided hope and benefit to a lot of people uh, over the last several years. And I know the chair of our um, of our center here, of the Temerty Center, Dr. Daniel Bloomberger, has been working very closely um, trying to to push the Ministry of Health a little bit in a, in a very kind way to, uh, to provide this treatment uh, uh, under OHIP. It is actually approved in some of the other provinces. So I believe in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, you can access it. Um, and I think it's either, of, I have to check my knowledge, but I think either in Quebec, it, it is approved or it's soon to be approved uh, to be provided there as well. Wow. So progress comes in fits and starts and... <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think so. And, you know, rightfully, the focus for the past several years has been somewhere else uh, with healthcare in Ontario. That um, I think, you know, now is the time to, to really try and move this forward and, and provide it as well. I would hope we can do more than one thing at a time <laughs> as individuals in society. But I know how hard that is. Um, you mentioned before that you know, we've made great strides in learning so much about the human body and about the brain, but there are still areas where we'd like to know more. What are the, the areas that you want to know more about the brain and how it functions and when it goes wrong? Oh, is it fair to say everything? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> You've touched, I mean, that's my, that's my shtick, right? That's my passion. So, um, so it would be great to understand both the healthy functions of the brain, right? Uh, and then also when things go wrong. But um, I think, you know, depression and anxiety are very common disorders um, in Canada and around the world. And so, uh, and, and really, I think 
um, as of a few years ago, uh, major depressive disorder was either the number two or the number one um, cause of time off work and of disability around the world. Um, so highly prevalent, right? Um, and, and it would be wonderful if we could figure out how to, uh, who is at more, more at risk. We have some sort of clinical aspects that let us know who is more at risk of developing a depressive episode. Certainly, if you've had one before, you're more at higher risk of having one again. Um, and, and if we could figure out how to prevent those or how to uh, help people remain well, I think, after they've recovered from the first episode, um, without resigning people to have to take medication for the rest of their life, because I know people really don't want to do that, and I can't blame them. Um, I think that would be that would be my number one wish. And my number two wish would be what, what I said before, which is to be able to develop these sort of diagnostic and prognostic tests to figure out uh, who who might become unwell again and who might respond to the types of treatments we have and be able to sort of stratify how we approach things uh, and one, help people get better faster and two, um, help people uh, not have to go through this trial and error of trying different, lots and lots of different medications and therapies and brain stimulation before finding something that works. Right. And these diagnostic and prospective tags that, that you mentioned, are we mm -hmm. getting any closer or is this still the, the impossible dream? I think we are getting closer. Uh, the type of work that I do, and, and the type, there are lots of different avenues to explore this. So we've, uh, CAMH has done lots of what we call pharmacogenetic or pharmacogenomic works. Um, where there's a cheek swab that you can do um, that, uh, and that's led by Dr. Daniel Mueller and Dr. Jim Kennedy here. Um, there's a cheek swab you do, you send it off, and it can give you sort of um, at least a picture of the types of medications that are more likely to cause side effects and more likely to be more complicated for you to take. Um, so that's, that's huge, I think, because side effects are, can be really debilitating for people. And then the type of work that I'm doing uses uh, a form of testing called EEG or electroencephalography. Uh, um, basically, we put this big swim cap on your head that has a bunch of wire sticking out. Some people may be familiar with it from having a sleep study. Um, you usually wear it at night when you have a sleep study done. Um, and uh, the wires sort of tell us a bit about the activity of your brain. They, they capture signals from your brain off of your scalp. Um, and if we send a signal in uh, to your brain, a magnetic signal into your brain, we can look at what comes out um, and how your brain responds. And we think, you know, we've got some early results that we've found some uh, sort of stereotypical or typical responses of people who have depression um, versus people who have healthy brains. Once people went through a course of RTMS, um, of this type of magnetic treatment that we offer here at the Temerty Center and also at UHN, um, the people who got better, their brains started to look more in these signals, in these responses from that test, they start to look more like the healthy brains. Um, so, so we're getting close. Those are small studies. And, and one of the projects that I'm working on now is to try and expand that and see if we can uh, work towards another trial of sort of stratifying people by the, how they respond to those tests um, to see whether we're on the right track, um, whether we can really predict who, who will respond to these types of treatments and who won't. So stay tuned, Rick. Maybe we can meet again in a couple of years and I'll have a, a different response for you. That's exciting. How restricted is uh, is research and development in this area due to, f you know, any shortage of funding? 
It's a hot topic. Did you move a lot faster? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, so in, you know, in the U.S., um, uh, the federal government has committed a whole ton of funding. Very recently, it's been in the news that they've committed all of this funding to try and uh, amplify science. They've also created a new um, uh, regulation that any federal funded, federally funded studies have to be reported in what we call open access journals so that people have access to the to the results very quickly. Um, you don't have to sort of pay this huge prescription, uh, subscription, sorry, not prescription to a journal, to a scientific journal in order, in order to read the paper and the results that come out of the studies. Um, in Canada, uh, we're a bit behind. We've, we've gotten some more federal fu- federally funded uh, funds or federally funded grants, but um, but significantly fewer than the U.S. Um, and and you know the proportion of, of monies that are coming um, from the government versus from philanthropic funds, I think is could be improved, and it's something that we're we're trying to work towards. Um, although I know that you know the federal government has made lots of strides to try and change that. I think there's always more that we can do. Um, and it'd be it'd be great to see uh, scientific progress as a real priority. I think for Canada, so we've got lots of really bright brains here, really lots of, of bright people who are working really hard. We see it in our graduate students. We see it in new and established faculty at the universities and the hospitals, and and lots of movement to be made. You know, at U of T, that's uh, where the discovery of insulin was. So so I think you know our next discovery can be for the brain. Why not? Right. Why not? Um, there's a role for entrepreneurs here. Uh, Jim Tamerty, the founder of Northland Power, uh, <clears throat> lent his name, so bought his name <laughs> into the University of Toronto, the Faculty of Medicine. Um, what's your case to entrepreneurs? Some people listening to this podcast are going to have huge exits and they're going to become great philanthropists. <laughs> what's your pitch for why they should support um, medical funding and uh, brain funding in particular? Well, we all have a brain. I think <laughs> the entrepreneur, entrepreneurs use their brains quite a lot, obviously, right? Um, but I think the it, it, it is sort of, again, that altruistic type of, of thing that we talked about at the beginning. Um, you know, I think these illnesses uh, and disorders are non-discriminatory. They affect everybody or a lot of people of all different backgrounds, uh, financial status, uh, level of intelligence, whatever it is, any creed, anything. Um, they're really, really not discriminatory. And and uh, the likelihood is that you have somebody in your life who has been affected by one or more psychiatric illness or disorder. And, and uh, I think there's lots to do and lots of people who are really motivated to work on it. And, and I would welcome any philanthropic uh, support uh, from people who are, who are making it big. I think we can only move things forward and only help each other uh, and everyone in the future. And, you know, even being part of a research study, I think is an altruistic um, move. Uh, a lot of our, our treatment studies are our research studies and they are, um, they can help you, but they might not help you, but they might help someone else in the future, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I think it's, we're all working in this manner to try and help ourselves and each other. Um, and, and anything that can be done, I think we, we'd always be happy to, to hear about. Okay. So entrepreneurs can get involved early and hopefully often. <laughs> yeah. So um, each year at Startup Canada, we conduct an entrepreneur census to try to understand Canadian entrepreneurs and their challenges. And uh, most recently, we discovered that uh, 
uh, the entrepreneurs we surveyed, 64% want to better manage their work-life balance and, and, and manage their stress and learn new coping strategies. What actually happens to our brains if we're in a constant state of stress due to work, um, life, um, the big, big problems that entrepreneurs try to solve? Mm-hmm. Um. So I think I think you know looking after yourself is really important. Um, whether you uh, officially have a psychiatric diagnosis diagnosis or not, um, and I think that on, when your brain is under a lot of stress, you're more likely to put more value um, and more importance on these uh, items that are very stressful and sometimes don't have a solution. The solution just has to work itself out, right? Um, and and that can be can be really difficult. The way our brain works is the more often we do something, the more hardwired that neuronal path becomes, right? So if you think about when you learn to tie your shoe as a child, um, you really had to think through all the steps, right? You make the bunny loops, go over, under, you pull. You, you had to think through those steps. But now if you look We're down not and your shoe is on shoe tying here, okay? I was the last person <laughs> in kindergarten to... <laughs> okay, let's take another Let's take another approach. Do you play tennis, Rick? Sort of. Okay, so when you when anybody who plays tennis, when they learned how to do a forehand, which is like the first swing you do in tennis, right? Mm-hmm. The first move. You had to think about it. You had to think about where to put your feet, where to put your racket, how to do your backswing, how to do your follow through, where to meet the ball, right? But at Pete Sampras, for example, or uh, Serena Williams, do not think about how to do a forehand. They just think, I'm going to hit a forehand, and it happens. The reason for that is because of all of the hours they've spent practicing that, practicing that specific move. It's so hardwired into their brain, so well entrenched, that neuronal path, that the movements go so quickly from neuron to neuron in your brain um, that the forehand just happens. You don't have to think through all the steps. And the same, unfortunately, happens with what we call pathological thinking, so anxiety and worries. The more you worry, the more you stress about something that is unfixable for you at this moment, the more likely those worries are going to become prominent and sometimes ruminative. Um, now, I don't think you can worry yourself into an anxiety disorder necessarily where there wasn't one to begin with or there wasn't a biological proclivity to it. But but you can definitely spend unnecessary hours thinking and worrying about things. Um, and so being able to break things down into what we call manageable chunks, as opposed to worrying about the whole overarching problem, I think is is very helpful in terms of healthy patterns of thinking. Um, so if you can't, uh, if you can't figure out the whole problem, try to figure out the first couple sentences of it, right? Um, can't figure out all of the finances or all of the project, work on the first little bit that you can sort out. Um, and then even the confidence from being able to sort that out will help you move on to the next chunk of it, as opposed to spending the whole time under a dark cloud worrying about the whole thing. Is confidence a thing if we're talking about brain activity and everything is confidence uh, a state that can be measured is it an objective uh, phenomenon that we can learn and train and use we do you know when uh, in in our residency training in psychiatry we all learn how to do a type of psychotherapy called cognitive behavioral therapy um, and one of the tenets of that 
it a bit, kind of, if you distill it down, is sort of fake it till you make it, right? So you... <laughs> Entrepreneurs know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> so you try and uh, move your sort of really negative thoughts into a more positive space um, that you believe, right? So you can't go from, I can't do anything to I'm king of the world. You have to go somewhere in between, right? Um, so a little bit more like, like I am a person and then you move on to I'm a person who can get out of bed. I'm a person who can get out of bed and get dressed. I'm a person who can get out of bed and get dressed and uh, turn on my computer today. You know, so, so moving and again, that, those are manageable chunks <laughs> if somebody's really unwell. But if somebody's, you know, functioning well, um, maybe moving uh, slowly in those projects and, and having these neutral or positive thoughts about the things that you can do um, or the aspirational things you'd like to be able to do. I think that that type of confidence uh, is very helpful. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, confidence is slightly different from optimism. Yes. Entrepreneurs are sort of professional optimists. Sure. It, can one study optimism? Is that a phenomenon? Yes. Um, I would leave that to sort of much smarter scientists than I am. Uh, but there are certainly lots of studies on, on optimism um, uh, and how much of a positive benefit it can have on people's lives. Um, definitely. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I just want to go back to that uh, finding by BDC and the Canadian Mental Health Association that 62% of entrepreneurs mm -hmm. in Canada feel depressed. Um, yeah once or twice a week. Um, we know that that's not the same as depression, but statistically, can you estimate how many of those 62% might actually want to think about, you know, getting help for that? Yeah, we know depression affects sort of maybe one in five people in Canada. So uh, I don't know, we do the math about one in five of those 62%, but I would say probably at least 20% of people in the entrepreneur field if we want I did to that math them. almost as fast as you yeah that's a lot <laughs> so it's it's you know it's not a small number of people and I think you know if you are feeling down all the time if there's no light to that cloud if you uh, maybe you're not feeling down but you just have no interest you can't get up and and get going with things you're having difficulty looking after yourself having difficulty interacting with others and socializing and you're withdrawing um, or having any of those dark thoughts uh, or you notice your concentration and appetite are, are not what they should be in your attention, feeling lots of guilt or hopelessness, you know, you can you reach out to your family doctor, you can reach out to CAMH or to some of the other institutions around Toronto and, and access some help. There's also community um, programs through the Canadian Mental Health Association and the Mood Disorders Association of Ontario. All of these things can be very easily found through Google um, that, that can be really helpful. Uh, to people and, and provide some help before things get too bad. And if 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 uh, a lot of our listeners aren't in Ontario, what should, mm -hmm. what should they be googling if they want to find centers for help in their city or province? Yeah, so most hospitals have a psychiatric department. Um, I think your family doctor, if you have one, which I know you know is also an, another issue. I think these days for Canadians mm -hmm. and, and people around the country. Um, Speaking with your family doctor is a great first step if you've got one. Um, you can usually Google the local mood disorders association. So I know there's one in, in BC and in Alberta and all the provinces have one uh, in Canada. And, and also uh, there are national mood disorders associations in the US um, and around Europe. Um, uh, and, and then um, 
there are these wonderful new phone numbers that are coming into play um, in Ontario and Canada. Um, I believe the number is 988 instead of 911. Um, and there's also one being developed in the U.S. Uh, that will allow people who are in, that's for people who are really in a mental health crisis to access help without accessing uh, police services. Wow. 988. That's good to know. Thank you so much. <laughs> that BDC survey we talked about, they talked to 500 entrepreneurs and the entrepreneurs gave them lots of reasons why they haven't been seeking support for their mental mm-hmm. health the cost of mental health services, lack of access to support, limited awareness of support, as well Mm -hmm. as stigma-related concerns. You don't want people to know that you're questioning your own mental health. Concern for reputation, discomfort for discussing the issue. None of that will be new to you. Um, (laughs) Any thoughts about what entrepreneurs can do to kick themselves into action and make sure they take better care of themselves? Yeah. So sleep is a big one. Sleep is a really big one. Um, Sometimes I write prescriptions for sleep and for exercise for my patients, (laughs) Um, even though it's not necessarily uh, something that you can prescribe. Um, But, you know, making sure that you're trying as best you can to get restful sleep away from your phone, away from the TV or the computer, um, turning those off at least half an hour, an hour before you go to bed um, and, and trying to get at least seven or eight hours of sleep a night. Although I know that can be really difficult for a lot of people uh, and and getting outside um, and doing some sort of exercise uh, once a day. So uh, walk around the block even, right? Five that minutes. That sounds so easy. Minutes. We're supposed to be stimulating our brains with lasers. Yeah, but those are the things, you know, if you are not already unwell, but you're under stress, those are the things that will help to regulate you and and help to ground you. I I think, I mean, I've heard from entrepreneurs that they sometimes they get their best ideas in the shower or while they're working out. So, you know, you're really working towards your career here, I think, if you're going for a walk. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) And is there a psychological reason for that, that when you let your brain sort of go free and... And, and unleashed that. Yeah, I don't think to we've open. totally figured that out, except that we do know that blood flow to your brain increases when you're doing some moderate exercise. Um, and so your neurons obviously are working better at that point. Um, and, and you're a bit in that zone. Your brain works in this rhythmic, oscillatory way. And so when you're in the zone doing something with exercise, um, your brain can focus a little bit better, I think. Um, and and we're not entirely sure, but we do know um, those parts of it. And we do know that, uh, you know, people who have regular exercise have lower incidence of um, what we call things like cerebrovascular disease. So stroke, heart attack, um, uh, hemorrhage in your brain, anything like that. Um, and their brains stay healthier longer. Uh, you may have heard about these blue zones around the world with people who live sort of the average age uh, of, of life is like above is like 10 years more than everywhere else in the world. Um, and, and these are people who aren't, they're not doing like, you know, the kind of exercise that we find fun, which is, you know, the sort of high intensity stuff. But they, these are people who are walking, who are having a, a, a healthy diet with lots of healthy fats, like olive oils, olives, um, avocados, things like that, um, fish, um, and who are, who are getting lots of sleep um, or good amounts of sleep. Uh, 
and and that's that seems to be at least part of what's contributing to it. I think there's something else that we we haven't figured out yet, but but definitely um, low intensity exercise like walking um, and the healthy diets and sleep are, are what's contributing to these longer longer lives for sure. So basically, the good news is that we can manage our mental health ourselves. I think so. I think there's, you can, yeah. Um, and, and do lots of things that are good for your mental health. And then also, you know, have a think about when things are out of balance. Um, and when you do need to reach out for help. And I think people, you're right, people have a, a lot of difficulty still with reaching out for help. Um, but we talked about the numbers for things like depression and anxiety. I think there's some form of anxiety in one out of every three or four people. It's also quite common. Um, so the likelihood it is that if you reach out to a friend or a family member and, and start to talk about it, that, that somebody you talk to will have some experience with this as well. And so, you know, the stigma has decreased, I think, um, but, but there's still a lot of work to do to let people feel comfortable to talk about it and, and not feel as though they're, um, they're lacking in something by, by having these difficulties. Okay, we have been talking with Daphne Voineskos. She's a psychiatrist, clinician, scientist, teacher, professor, and uh, so many things uh, looking after our brain health and helping pushing back the frontiers of brain science. Any final words, maybe some optimism about the, 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 the state of mental health in Canada or the state of the science? Any final words to share with our entrepreneurs and business builders? a lot of pressure, Rick. Uh, I think <laughs> there's there's a lot of, of things to be hopeful and positive about. I think we're, ma- we're making lots of progress. Um, you know, the stigma is decreasing, as we said, around mental health. Uh, people are generating a lot of interest in, in trying to work towards it. I think, you know, even these apps, there's a Canadian app uh, by a company called Beacon um, or Mind Beacon, um, helping people get electronic access to cognitive behavioral therapy. There's better help in the States. There's all of these um, uh, meditation apps and things on our phones uh, that we can use to, to help our, our mental health. Um, and, and I think all of these are positives and we're on the right track. Uh, and there's a lot to be to be hopeful for. And, and there's a lot, I think, that the people around you can help with as well. So if, if you are having difficulty, I would encourage you to reach out to your support system around you, uh, to your family doctor or a physician uh, or nurse you know, and, and try and access some help if you need it, because the help is there and and we're, we are able to do something about, about these illnesses and about the difficulties people are having in their lives. Wow. Daphne, thank you so much for this podcast, for sharing all this with us, and for the work you do and the work that your colleagues are doing to try and uh, and, and push back the frontiers here and, and help people adapt. We're in a really stressful world, and uh, we're glad that people like you are helping us uh, learn how to navigate it, even if it's as simple as getting out for a walk. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, and continued movement, continued forward movement. Let, let, let's figure all this stuff out. <laughs> working on it. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence. <laughs>